Welcome to the Third Way Podcast 100 episode. I'm your new host, Virginia Lacayo, <laughs> and we're going to celebrate the 100 episode. And for that, I'm going to put Justin, on behalf of all of us, in the guest seat. So we got dozens of questions that were submitted from you and from close friends and family members. So it's going to be really intimate. <laughs> and we'll see how many we can get through. We have 30 so far, so we'll see how far can we go. Great. Welcome, Justin. Thank you. Welcome, Virginia. Are you ready? <laughs> I am ready. <laughs> okay. Also, I haven't, I saw some of the questions because they were text questions, but I didn't see lots of them. So. No, you don't, you haven't seen more than half. Yeah, that's probably right. So, that's right. Yeah. So, so I'm sure there'll be some in there that you created that are designed purely to stump me. <laughs> <laughs> to, yeah, some. Okay. Let's okay. do it. Let's start. So the first question is, what has the fallout been from your spiritual journey? Ah, yeah. Fallout from my spiritual journey is, is enormous um, because, you know, when you start off on a spiritual journey, that a lot of things die, a lot of things end. And so, you know, the, the, the structures, you know, there's the structures change. The, the, not just your conditions, not just your perspectives, is you don't go into a spiritual journey and keep everything the same and just with different eyes. It's, you know, that's why all the stories of spiritual journeys are journeys. They're moving you from one place to another, and so you have to leave something behind. And for me, I left behind uh, an identity. You know, I used to be consider myself a right-wing Christian conservative. I was a, uh, considered myself... Um, you know, I, I had this identity within my marriage at the time uh, where I lived in Idaho um, and and certainly the church that I grew up in. Um, those those things were all left behind as I grew. And I think that's why a lot of people don't do this. They don't do a spiritual journey because the sacrifice is pretty enormous. And that's not even including all the inner stuff that's changed. I mean, you've coming up on three years, you've been a witness to that of how much I've changed. Um, and I was fairly far into my spiritual journey when we met. Yeah, that, that is for a whole episode. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, we're going to come back to these questions in another form okay. later. Okay, yeah, so. great. What are you most proud of? Hmm. Well, I'm proud of my sons. Um, you know, the, the, the ones I made and then the one you made that is my stepson. So Logan and Caden, um, you know, they are, they're beautiful men. And they are, they're, they're kind, they're funny, they're creative, they're good. Um, they're good partners. Um, and I can't imagine... I mean, and they, and they become two of my best friends in the world. And then Andre, watching him grow over the last three years, I'm proud of him and, and his, especially the, the way you raised him to be, he's one of the most emotionally aware kids I've ever met. You know, he's still a 13-year-old, yeah, but he's emotionally aware. So um, I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of myself and how far I've come even in recent months. Um, you know, the, the painful transition from what I, you know, it's a, so like you said, another episode, but I'm proud of the resilience I've gained. I'm proud of the tools I've learned. I'm proud of how I 
gather the resources in order to grow. Um, so I'm proud of me. What's that meme? I want to thank me. Remember that? <laughs> for believing in me. Yeah, I want to thank me for believing in me. But <laughs> for I all wish the hard I, work I did. Right, yeah. I wish I had that level of arrogance, but I, I'm humbly proud of myself. I think it's not arrogance. I think it's, you know, it's true. You yeah. should be proud of yourself. Well, thank you. Otherwise, you haven't achieved enough. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> That's a three talking. Okay. <laughs> what, the next question. What childlike trait do you hope you never lose as you grow older? Mm. My sense of humor. My, my willingness to get in trouble. To say, to say the, maybe to be an agitator. I've always been that way. I always think of my getting in arguments with my mom when I'm seven and I'm quoting the Constitution and telling her that she'd be a great leader in the Soviet Union. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, and I, think, I think just a general sense that I, I, I took on kind of a pessimistic, uh, negative adult persona to protect the inner child. And as I've just deconstructed that, I'm, I, I think my just general optimism for life is the one that I most want to have because I think if I'm optimistic about life, then I'll have my sense of humor, then I'll be creative, then I'll be an agitator, but I'll be an agitator in a, in a healthier way. Hmm. What do you fear the most? Uh, I fear complacency. I fear, um, I, I do fear as at, at 52, 53 and up later this year, not having the energy to do what I want to do. Um, but again, I'm really good at marshalling resources and, and making plans and systems to get what I want. Um, but I do fear that like that day, the days when, um, it's gonna, when my body won't do what I want it to do. I do, I do fear that a bit. Um, I don't fear death. Um, I, I, I kind of fear insignificance, but way less now that what we're doing with Massive in particular. So those are some things. Hmm. Uh, this is from a good friend of yours that really admire you. It says, as a relatively new, cool, sexy grandpa, <laughs> how do you see expectations for men post 50 changing for better and worse? Well, I think... Uh, I think that the, the, one of the big areas for that is, and it's something I wrote about in, um, human bacon, my second book that came out in 2013, which is you're not old until yesterday is more interesting than tomorrow. That's when you're old. So, you know, Betty White wasn't old until she died, you know, or I think of my grandmother who, um, she was never old. She, her body failed her, but she was never old in that mindset. And I think that's especially true with Gen Xers. And, and it's interesting thing with, with Gen X men is that there's a, you know, it's not a super successful generation. There's not, it's not, um, there's still a lot of Gen X men, especially Gen X men that don't have their emotional and sometimes literal shit together. Um, and I think that being raised in a very much a consumer age, especially as an American, that's taking a toll on men. That's why I think you see such a, a mental health crisis with men. You see an identity crisis with men that are, that are my age. Um, 
but I think the biggest thing is, is that you're, you're never really old until you decide to be. And that could be related to um, technology. It could be related to sex. It could be related to um, physical fitness. It could be related to spiritual curiosity. Those, those things, those, the things that are based on energy are going to be there no matter what your age is, unless you start to believe that your age is somehow the thing that defines who you are. And fuck that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, what are the three most important life skills that parents should try to teach their children? Mm. Number one is a, um, is a critical mind. You know, the ability to observe your thoughts and feelings and not over-identify with them. To acknowledge them, but not over-identify with them. I think that's a big one. Um, how to uh, write and, and speak, how to communicate, how to use language as a lever, how to use language as a, uh, a, a community builder, an idea spreader. I think that's huge. And I think the third is, to, is the skill of developing your own philosophy, your own point of view of the world, so that you're not somebody else's karaoke singer or cover band, is that you are out you know, inspired by people, others, but you are creating your own ideas. You're, 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 you're making shit that you can't Google, as I've often said. And I think those are skills you teach kid, your kids. I did that with Logan and Caden. We're doing that with Andre. Um, and, you know, the, that's, where, that's where you start to see the payoff of that, those skills. I agree. Resilience, I will add to yeah, that. Yeah, resilience, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, what is the most surprising personal discovery you have had so far? Oh, man. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I think, actually, I think, I was just thinking about this the other day. I think the most surprising personal discovery is that anxiety is optional. Hmm. That it is the, it is a, it's a sign of disconnect. It's a messenger of disconnect from your soul, from your true self. And I, I've been someone that's dealt with anxiety my entire life, my, from three years old to, you know, even today I had a little anxiety, but I was aware that I was aware that it was optional um, and that it was a messenger. That's probably the biggest one. I would say also spiritually um, that we are, that we have for whatever label you want to use, we, we, we have God's DNA in us. We're creators, we're inventors. Where we change things, we grow things, we we lead evolution, um, and to realize you have this power inside of you, especially when you feel powerless when you're younger, which you know, you know, survivors of childhood abuse often feel that way, and so it's this inner power that I didn't know I had, um, and in that inner power, I learned that I actually have a good heart, that I I can do the right thing under pressure, um, that I, I have learned that as well. Okay. If there was one thing you never needed to think about again, what would that be? Uh, wow. Hmm. I, I, I think it's, I don't want to ever th think, and I'll use, I'll just paraphrase this, say doubt, doubting is thinking. If I would love to never doubt my own self-worth. You know, one of the questions I like to ask people is, what would you do differently if you could see what, what God sees or the universe sees? What would you do? 
um, because it's a radically different answer than the tr traditional, you know, the play it small or play it dangerous, but kind of the two, the binary view of most humans. But I'd say that. Hmm. Never doubt yourself. Yeah. yeah. Um, what are you most excited about in your life right now? You. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> it's true. Um, I'm excited about our blended family. Um, seeing our, our, seeing, you know, Logan and Sarah raising Fiverr and Maven, seeing Caden and Madison grow, seeing the rest of our family flourish and, you know, travel the world and build their careers. And it's, it's, it's really magnificent to see our blended family. I'm excited about that. And then I'm, I'm excited about, I'm excited about going into on a day-to-day -day basis with more, with less, with way less anxiety, way less insecurity, way less anxious attachment. I feel like I've shed like 60 pounds of emotional, you know, baggage. I'm excited about that because that's gonna, those were imp impeding on all the things I wanted to accomplish. And so I'm excited about what that's, what that feels like. I can already, fe I've been feeling over the last several weeks, this greater sense of groundedness and I think then that's reflected in what we're doing with Massive and, and how we're coaching history shapers. And we're, we're, we're combining our skills and our gifts to do some pretty epic shit. And I'm excited about that. Yeah, me too. Um, this is a good one. This is a good one. Listen, mm -hmm. if you could only have one thought, what would that be? One thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know this one. I think about this a lot, actually. I am love. Oh. I am love. If I, if that's the only thought I had, everything else is going to fall into place. If I don't have that thought, it doesn't mean you can't have a good life and it can't be fulfilling, but it'll be different. When you, when you realize that you are love, you become unstoppable in many ways. And you are. Oh, thank you. What do you miss about ranch life? What do I miss about ranch life? I miss horses. I got out a couple weeks ago horseback when I was visiting my family in, in Eastern Oregon. And I, I shared this then, but I don't think anybody has an existential crisis on the back of a horse. Um, I miss the, the sense of finality of something being done. You know, when you you feed the steers, you feed the steers. Now you got to do it again later that day or the next day. So the repetition I don't miss, but I miss, miss like you start working on something and then you're done. And there's always something to work on, but you still get to be done. Being an entrepreneur, especially professional services entrepreneur, there's not a lot of doneness in, in the work that we do. You know, it's iterative and you know, it's um, spherical. It's not really like, like the ranch life. And I miss, um, I miss the simplicity of a lot of it, you know, like being there, hanging out with Cameron, and then later on hanging out with my Uncle Don and my cousin Jessica, that um, there's a simplicity to that life that, you know, by necessity, suburban life or city life is somewhat, is quite com complicated, you know, from both from an expense standpoint and just to have a, air quotes, normal lifestyle is radically different than the ranch, which has got its own set of problems. It's but they're different problems. There's a simplicity there. 
What is something you hold sacred or dear now that never will have occurred to you a decade ago? Honesty. Huh. Honesty. Like radical honesty with myself and with others. You know, when you... When, you, when you're a, a survivor of childhood trauma, you're raised in a fundamentalist cult, essentially, that really runs on what I call the piece of shit doctrine. You develop a, um, you develop kind of a split life um, between the, this persona or hologram that you produce to make it in the world, to make it in, the, in a community, and then who you really are. And... My, and, and, and so one of my things is um, that I'm constantly reminding myself is to practice micro-honesty with myself and with others. You know, it's that there's no, uh, and, and I do this subconsciously. I mean, you've witnessed it. I still subconsciously as a survival mechanism kind of work the angle and I pitch and I persuade a little bit, but I'm, I'm much more aware of that and much more declarative and, and open and optional because I'm honest with myself, you know, I'm honest with my, uh, my impulse to pitch people. Uh, and, but yeah, honesty. What do you consider are your top three strengths? Um, my ability to communicate, to speak and write. Um, and within that is my, my messaging, my ability to create messages and the language that brands and people need that they really that their soul wants to communicate to the world. I have I say this with no hubris. I think I'm the best in the world at that, at, at crafting people's messages because I'm not helping them figure out what they want, what they need to say in order to get people to buy something. I'm helping them translate what their soul has been yearning to say many, often for many years, and say it with confidence. So that's one, just language. Number two is um, ADHD. Is a superpower pattern recognition. It's a pain in the ass sometimes, but pattern recognition, seeing um, the ability to multi-think, um, the ability to um, organize systems in a radically different way than traditional linear systems that most people in our society have. And then the third is, um, like I, one I already mentioned, is my ability to marshal resources for myself and for others. Like, if you said, I need, if anybody came to me and said, I need something, I'm the, I'm the guy that says, I know a guy, <laughs> you know, like I know how to marshal resources, whether that's everything from mental health to, to, to financial, um, stuff, to business, to spirituality, to, I mean, all over marriage, all over. I have the, I have the strength of marshaling resources. Okay. I follow up questions to that. Uh -huh. What are the shadows? Of each one of those skills or mm. strengths? Um, the shadow, that's a great question. The shadow of communication is that I, without awareness, will use language to get what I want. And the other person will think that I'm, uh, that it will feel like they're getting what they want. Mm -hmm. So I can be, I can be pretty, um, I can have a tendency to be pretty manipulative. Um, it's uh, Somewhat benevolent manipulation, but it is still manipulation. That's the shadow of that one. The shadow of ADHD is the um, is loss of executive function. Is basically an, uh, a paralysis of doing nothing, or actually just like complete mental burnout, um, where you just I can't function. Um, th that's the shadow of that. 
And then the, um, the shadow of marshalling resources is that it makes me a fixer. Sometimes I'm intrusive. Mm. I can be a bit of a colonizer, to use your term. You know, where it reminds me of the Ronald Reagan quote. He says the worst, the, the scariest phrase you can hear is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, you know. <laughs> uh, and so there's an element of that, like I'm here to help. And what I recognize now is like, am I doing this because I want them to feel something different about me or is that about my image? And sometimes it is. I sometimes do things for people because I like to hear, wow, thank you. But that's the secondary thing is that I truly I've really tried to just marshal resources first when invited and second with the right intention. Mm. This is a very high awareness of you to be able to quickly answer that question. Most people just stumble on that one. No, well, we'll see. We'll, I'm sure there's somewhere <laughs> I'm going to stumble on here. All right. The next one is politically, mm -hmm. you have been on very opposite sides of the spectrum throughout your life. What influenced you in changing your mind? Well, first I would challenge that. I haven't, my political views, I mean, really haven't changed much. It depends on what that is. I still believe in, in the conservative idea of a small government, a small government that serves the people. I don't believe in big government. I don't believe in, you know, and I believe in a constitutional government. And I think, I think we've drifted from those things. So I'm not, I'm more... I'm more of sort of a radical centrist, to quote uh, my friend Don, uh, or my friend Bryce, excuse me. Um, and But progress socially, with social issues, I have become m much more progressive. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll lean into that a little bit. I think consciousness, doing the work of consciousness, helps you see that ideology is the lowest form of consciousness. It is... It is it is the lowest form of consciousness. So you go above that, you start to get sort of post-ideological and you start to see, you start to become more pragmatic. You start to see the systemic connections between things. You start to understand that um, um, the concept of rugged individualism has been overblown at the expense of taking care of communities. Um, and I think that, so where I've shifted on that, the, the main factor for that is consciousness. But then having um, my former sister-in-law, Leah, is married to Eddie, who's, uh, who's black, and so they have mixed-race kids. So having um, black family members was eye-opening um, and helped me understand systemic racism a lot more. Um, and then um, having a, a trans sibling, even though we don't have a relationship, sadly, it has helped me understand that issue and been much more progressive and about that to the point that I will take on somebody that says anti-trans stuff, even though she and I don't have a relationship. And then when, and Lena, my former partner, her coming out and her being queer and um, really embracing who she is, is very insp inspirational. But I will say, and I would say this if you weren't you weren't here, is that the main influence on my on the shift of what would be my political views is you, with your background in central you know Central America, growing up in a war, your background, your your your, your education in communication for social change, being a feminist, being a, a community organizer and activist. It's been so enlightening, where but where I now see um, what how different it is to be what I call a wham, a white American male. 
the wham view is very different than people that are not those three things and that's shifted my political views um, significantly so I don't have anybody that I would say that I'm politically aligned with. I have certain people I admire. I admire Liz Cheney. Don't like her necessarily her social views, but I admire her courage standing up to Trump. I admire I admire Biden to a large extent. He's a lifetime of service and has suffered tremendous loss. Um, but they're not. I don't have any ideological role models where I'm like that's who I believe in. I, I have my own consciousness-based views of the world. And I just need to constantly need to remind myself not to go out and, you know, colonize those things just because they're my opinion. What is stories of success after fail failure is your favorite? Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting as I don't, I don't really believe in failure. I don't really believe in the idea that, I mean, Failure is, to me, is apathy. And I've really, other than when I was dealing with depression, I've never really been apathetic. That would be failure to me. So anything that's not apathy-based or not purpose-based, anything that's not, you know, anything with purpose can't, it just is learning. It's not really failure. Um, you know, I would say the, so yeah, so that's my answer to that question is I can't think of it. It's, I think it's a bit binary to say from failure to success. I mean, I understand the intent of the question, but I, I don't have something where I went from failure to success because the journey was part of it. So the whole, I think the worst failure would be to not learn anything from failing. You know, that, that would suck. And I, I think I've done, I've done that. Um, so as so, long as you're learning, successful. Yeah. yeah, as long as you're growing, as long as you're alive, um, as long as you've got air in your lungs and you can feel your soul. I, I, I think that there will be failures, like short, you know, shortcomings and shortfalls and lo losses. You take the L, take the loss, but it's all strategic. It all works out in the end as long as you keep your heart open and you keep executing. Hmm. What advice would you tell to your 20 years old self? Oh, man. You know, this is a common question, but still always good. <laughs> um, I, think, I think the advice I would give to that Justin, who at 20, I was, had already was married. Um, I was working a, uh, my first kind of corporate job as an administrative assistant. I, I had no idea who I was. I had adopted this identity of being a church-going husband. And so I think my advice to that, Justin, would be don't let other people, including systems, define who you are. And, and the process of finding who you are is going to be fucking painful. So you need to get some skills earlier on. I, you know, I, at 52, I'm learning how to deal with anxiety. And so if I was to tell younger Justin is you're going to, you don't let someone else define who you are. You're to find your identity, but you need skills to do that. Then, you know, there's a whole list of those kind of skills. Mm -hmm. um, kind of in that line, what was the catalyst for your shift from being a mind-centered to heart-centered person? Um, well, I think the 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 main shift is that. 
the awareness that my mind, this thing that I relied on, because I had no athletic ability, I didn't have, you know, I didn't play music, I didn't have these, you know, things that I could build a community around, or, you know, I, I could, if you're, if you're athletic, or if you're good at music, or you're good at math, or something, you can build a little community. I didn't have that, I, but I did have my intellect, and so I really over-identified with my mind, and then I realized, and I realize this often, how wrong my mind is, how unreliable it is, that it's this sort of bias-infused distortion machine. And then what I realized is my heart has never failed me, not once. And my heart has never failed me, has never led me astray. It's my mind that's talked me out of things or talked me into things that my heart... My heart would say yes and my mind would say no and justify something else or my heart would say no and my mind would justify doing it, especially related to dishonesty or pretense. And I, I think that was, when it, it was almost like a logical thing. I was like, why am I trusting this part of me, especially on spiritual matters? Because the mind is just going to give you comparison and, and an identity and it's going to give you, you know, these structures that you, if you adhere to them, the ego feels comfortable, the mind feels comfortable. But the heart by its nature is free. And when it feels impinged, it lets you know. And I think I just responded to that. I just responded to that realization that I need something more reliable. I, I think this is close to that, but says, um, what circumstances made you question and redefine your concept or idea of masculinity? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Well, I mean, the first one was growing up on a ranch. And my dad, I always describe my dad as a bit, he was like Michael Scott on The Office. So if you know that character, that's very much like my dad. Um, I don't want to speak poorly of him, but that's a good description. My grandfather, on the other hand, as I said at his memorial, he was the man that John Wayne was pretending to be. And I was greatly shaped by, even though we didn't have TV and didn't go to movies or anything like that, I still had enough exposure because my grandparents um, had a TV and they, were, they weren't part of the church that, we, that I grew up in, to you know, John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and Robert Redford and you know, these, these, these sort of like symbols of masculinity. Um, so that was an influence. Um, I think the other, the other thing that really confronted, there's two others, really confronted my, me with my view of masculinity is when Lena came out. And the, in that process, you know, a lot, of, a lot of men in particular, low conscious men are like, oh, cool, dude, your wife's a lesbian. That must be fun. And I'm like, no, it's fucking terrifying and not fun. And, you know, very supportive of her in, in that process. But it wasn't fun. And it made me question my own masculinity. There's that ego part of you that, you know, that somehow, air quotes, that I'm a weak man and that made her gay. You know, because that, that's, that's a social conditioning thing. I got over that quickly, fairly quickly. But, um, and then I think the biggest one is, is you. Like, I remember when we were, we had a, I think it was... Um, it was a Christmas dinner that Lena hosted before she moved. And you asked me on the drive home about, in paraphrasing, some, you witnessed some, peri, uh, some um, patriarchal. patriarchal tendencies. 
And I was quite, as I often am with you, taken aback, <laughs> which is a nice way of saying offended. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then looking at how I view power. And I remember you saying at times that you, that you didn't feel equal. And that was so foreign to me because, but I realized it's like when people say, I don't see color. You know, you, you don't see people that are people of color that say that. Mm. Um, and so... That's right. So I looked at, I looked at, I began to look at masculinity as like conscious masculinity or like uh, David Dida in The Way of the Superior Man. And there's others out there. There's lots of, um, Justin Baldani is a, a great example of this, um, of conscious masculinity, which is sort of this um, protector of space protector of autonomy that 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 wasn't there before and that's a role and even it being in a support role like that was new for me to be in a support role I, it was usually in a, in a in, I was the leader to be in a support role and um, was 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 new to me as well but I'll tell you it feels a lot more like right fit for me to be a protector of space than just trying to fight everybody or trying to protect me, my child from hurt. Your inner child. My inner child from hurt. Yeah, it's not, it's not the right use of masculinity or the correct use of masculinity. The correct use of masculinity is to allow, to create space for your inner child to flourish and to protect the space and sovereignty and autonomy of the people that you love. Hmm. Um, in that line, is there a thought leader that you consider has influenced you the most? I mean, every thought leader influences me in some way um, and that it evolves. Um, I think the greatest thought leader though that actually transformed me was Fiverr. I think my grandson. Um, and, and I don't, obviously he didn't do it intentionally, but his, his gift, his soul, the kind of human that he is, you know, when, when, I'll admit when Logan and Sarah told me that they were pregnant, when she that she was pregnant, that was super happy for them, but also like sad for me. It's like, man, I haven't lived life in a long. I haven't lived enough life. I haven't experienced things to be, a, you know, before being a grandfather. And people would say, "Congratulations, Grandpa," and I would smile and say, "Thank you." But inside, I'm like, "Don't call me that." And then, because of COVID, I didn't get to see him for till he got home, and. I remember, I have video of this somewhere, of holding him, and I could feel the last 50 years end and the next 50 years begin. And you know someone's a thought leader when you have a before and after them. And I know of no, the only other close second to that before and after would be you, the before and after. Um, but I'm going to give Fiverr the number one slot on this one. <laughs> I agree with that. Um, I'm going to use one of your questions against oh. you. This oh, time. <laughs> against me? Oh, no, karma. <laughs> yeah. What truth would you share with the world if you had a mic and three shots of tequila? Three shots of tequila? You know me. If I had three shots of tequila, I'd be crawling underneath the table. Probably not. Or on the table. You're, you're becoming more, more resilient now. <laughs> yeah, you I hold had, it better now. So I, I think three shots is... It's a good message. Three shots over six hours, let's say. Okay. No. Um, that you, that I think that the, the truth I would share with the world, I don't even need three shots of tequila. I'll do this for 
completely stone sober, is that you are here to do something far greater than you think. Far greater than you think. It's, I, you know, there's the phrase doing something bigger than you, but, you know, that's true, kind of cliched now, but it's far bigger than you think. And we've seen this with some of our clients where they had this little idea and then they come to us and we start, that's what we call what we do, make it massive. And they see it. And it's that dent in the universe. And, and I don't think anybody's special in the sense of like some people are called to make a dent in the universe and some are called to be worker bees. Now, I'm aware of economic and social and you know authoritarian states that really suppress people that they don't have those same opportunities. But given the opportunity, everyone has something inside of them that is far bigger than they realize. And your first job is to figure out what that is. You figure it out, whatever that takes. That's what rites of passage were. That's why indigenous people had, you know, go off and do peyote and fast and wait for the moon to talk to them. You know, that's why that was done. And we don't, we don't really do that anymore. We don't have rites of passage like that. So you have to create your own. You have to create your own suffering sometimes because life is very comfortable. Um, that's why I have tattooed on my arm. The, the mission is in the suffering. You have to suffer or struggle to know why you're here. And this, I think, is an amazing state of awareness when you are aware that you will always think small. Yeah. It's in our nature. It's no matter how big you think your dreams are, yeah. you're still thinking small. Right. And, and we mistake insecurity for cowardice. Or cautiousness. Or cautiousness. Yeah. And it's, it's, I always say this, courage is not a feeling. It's a behavior. And it always trails action. You don't wait to feel courageous and then do something because then you would never do anything. Because you're right. I mean, the, 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 our brain is programmed and designed to keep us playing safe. Yeah. Um, it's I, The way I've always said it is the ego, your ego wants you to be safe and your soul wants you to be joyful. And they, that's why they fight. Yeah. Okay. This is the next one. Mm -hmm. What is something that always makes you cry? <laughs> Let's start with sadness. Um, I don't, you know, like, like <laughs> I think of it, I always answer this with a story, but you and I watched that um, new Tom Hanks movie. Um, it, its name escapes it's, me. The, uh, Man Named Otto. Otto, yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Man Named Otto. And I think it was partially because of the circumstances at the time. But that movie touched me so deeply. I think the last time I cried like that after a movie was uh, Lone Survivor. Um, and that was about guilt on my part for not actually you know, doing something that was sacrificing. Um, in this case, it was, it was, it was, the, it was the realization that you only, we only get to do this once. And it's weird that we're designed that there's a part of us that will want to kind of fuck it up. And, and I was, I think that what I was afraid of is that allowing that part of me, that play small part of me to govern me all in the name of sort of protection, but really in this kind of self colonization. So that type of stuff, like lost opportunity that makes me cry. That you, yeah. Or, or seeing it in a movie or reading about it in a book, like what might have been like the book you're reading, a book that I read before I met you, um, How, How to Stop Time by Matthew Haig. 
that book made me cry because it's like that. It's like the mist and, the, and, and just this, the grief that comes with being a human, mm. you know, loss, you know. Yeah. And what makes you cry of happiness? <laughs> Lots of things make me cry of happiness now. I mean, you've seen this and I'm, it's a super vulnerable and maybe a little bit, you know, uh, uh, over, I don't think it's oversharing, but how, many times when you walk into a room, especially for like date night or something, I, I, my first reaction is I just tear up. It's like, it's like, there's nothing, it's just something about the way that you look and your energy and everything. Just the first, that's the first reaction is I kind of want to, I want to, I, I tear up and I, and I laugh. And then there's like this visceral reaction to you. And it's like that kind of every time you walk into a room and I know, man, this sounds like super romantic and everything, but I don't know. Fuck it. That's how I feel. Um, you know, my, my kids, our kids, my family, and, you know, seeing them happy and productive and, you know, creating and, and, and making it and doing things that, that always tears me up to watch them. I, I feel like when I'm around, especially around Logan or Caden, like, I feel like I'm on perpetually on the verge of crying. Like when we went out with Caden and Madison for a double date night recently and just watching him with her, how he is, just how, how beautiful our kids are, all three of them. That makes me cry. It makes me want to cry right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay. Um, talking about life, what would you like to be remembered for? More specifically, what would you want to have to be, to your eology say? Um... I think my I think my um, eulogy would say something like he did everything he was sent here to do. Everything. Everything he was he did everything he was sent here to do. And that's the key key thing is like there's a lot of things I want to accomplish, but the biggest accomplishment for me is to do what I was sent here to do. And and I, there's that's multiple parts to that. One is to be a conscious man, um, a conscious white American man in particular. Another is to build a, um, a business with you that is going to make a dent in the universe. You know, that's, that's one. And, and to lead and to continue to, that, that I, that I wrote, I, you know, that I, I'm, I, I write it all down and I share it with the world. You know, the essays that I write and even these podcast episodes, but especially my essays and, and the talks I give, I, I, I want, I want, my words, and I say this with no arrogance, is I want my words to be read after the people that knew me have died. You know, they call that the second death, where everyone that knew you passes away. I want my words, because they're not really mine. I'm a conduit. I just, I want them to have legs. I want somebody to pick up a book. Um, you know, once I, I, you know, one of my projects is to put my musings into a series of books, and they pick that up, and they find it in a bookstore in the year, you know, 2150 and they're like holy shit this is good you know that's that kind of legacy that's what I want hmm. I you have it hmm. thank you in 10 years what will you be nostalgic for um, I'll be nostalgic for the 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 teen teenage years for with Andre you know I, I, I had a chance to relive those you know I've said this publicly but I met Andre, he was 11, 
when we met. And, and that time frame between Logan and Caden, when Logan was 11 or 12, and then that six years again until Caden was 11 or 12, is when I had the most severe depression. So I don't really remember. There's a lot of things I don't remember. Um, I have to look at pictures or people tell stories, but I don't remember them. And he, not getting to know Andre and, and co-parenting with you, I'm going to miss having, I'm going to miss that because you're not going to get to do it again. I'll, I'll miss having, I mean, maybe, maybe um, there'll more babies in the future with, uh, with our kids, but, you know, the, these, these first two, you know, seeing them grow even now, I can't believe Fiverr is going to be three years old in September. It's crazy. That's it. I'm not, I don't know that I would be nostalgic. I, I, I know this is an evolution for me because a lot of the angst that I had in the last year in particular was sort of just trying to hold on to the river as opposed to just trust the river that, that just keep flowing, keep going with the flow that abundance is ahead. It's not something held on to abundance. You reach it and there it is and you harvest it and you go and you go and you don't hoard so I don't want to hoard anything. I don't want to take anything for granted. I don't want to miss anything, but I don't want to hoard anything in this process because it doesn't work. It's an illusion. You know, that we know you can't keep, you can't take it with you. That's true in this life too. You can't, you can take memories with you, but you can't take moments with you. You have to go create new ones. And if you're busy holding on, and I wasted so much fucking time with this, if you're busy holding on to moments, you're going to miss the next ones. And, that's talk about you know sad it's sad that's a waste it's what you said at the beginning of the this episode that um the saddest part or is that you are in trouble when you think that yesterday is better than tomorrow yes exactly yeah all right um a few more okay okay what misperception most people have of you <laughs> Uh, well, a lot of people think I'm some sort of raging liberal now, uh, because I'm, you know, pro LGBTQT and talk about systemic racism and I'm pro changing immigration laws to something more sane or more sane gun regulations. I say that as a gun owner. Um, so there's that, uh, which is sort of amusing to me. I think, um, I think people, I think people think that it's easy for me to, uh, write because I'm prolific like, it's just, you know, it's brutal. It's like leg day in the gym every day to write, every, you know, musings not so much. But essays, man, those are, those are a labor of love. They're not, it's not as easy as, just because I'm prolific doesn't mean it's easy. Um, and I think um, it's misperceived about me that I am, um, I think this is less so now, but that my, I'm an eight in the Enneagram, I'm a high D in the disc, and so I can be very declarative. And, and I think people mistake my declarativeness for absolutism. And I'm actually, and I've kind of always been this way, fairly open-minded, but I just speak in a way that's declarative. I don't speak in a way that's, I don't use passive voice. Um, unless I'm insecure and I'm trying to, you know, manage how someone feels about me. But that's not, that's not, that's a different, a different situation. Um, and I, and I'm like, I am opinionated, but I'm, I think I'm more, more open-minded than I think people perceive me to be. I think that's changed some, but I think more, maybe more people think I'm open-minded, but for a long time that people didn't think so. Cause I had this sort of like dogmatic enthusiasm for my beliefs. 
Um, okay, let's do two more. Okay. We're almost done. That's fine. I can, I can right. go for this another has hour. Been fun. Yeah. <laughs> How your concept of a conscious relationship has changed in the past year? Oh, wow. Save that one for towards the end. <laughs> um, a couple of things. I used to think that, you know, using our relationship as an example, the conscious relationship was sort of like an achievement level, like in a video game, like you're at conscious relationship. And I realize now it's iterative and it's constantly evolving about what it is, depending on the stage of life. And, um, you know, you and I went through the stage, at least in my experience, the stage of like the sheer bliss and like euphoria of finding each other after all these years. And then this kind of container for working out our trauma shit and then leaving that into a new phase. And that was, that was painful to leave that phase, painful for both of us. Uh, painful for you to experience me leaving it and painful for me too. Um, and what's, so where I, at now is a term that we came up with is an erotic friendship with shared goals. You know, so we, there's a friendship in there. And I was always sort of anxious about that because I had I ha I've had, you know, I had a great friendship, still do. I have an amazing friendship with Lena. But now I know why we didn't have necessarily the chemistry because of who, you know, who she, she, who she really was. Um, but I was afraid. I had this story that being two, being friends with you in particular would mean somehow loss of chemistry, loss of attraction. And that's turned out not to be true. <laughs> that the more we become friends and we've really worked on our friendship in the last couple months, It's, it's brought its own kind of eroticism to it. That is, it's, it's like where adventure meets familiarity. And I didn't know that trust was an aphrodisiac. That's another big one too, without getting into any details. <laughs> uh, and um, to, this is another one, is a conscious relationship is an outcome. It's a fruit like all things spiritual. It's a fruit, not, an in, not just an intention or a theory. And I posted this as amusing the other day that without presence, everything is a theory, including love. So in, by being present and, and living in, in a state of presence, I'm able to, within our relationship, I'm able to um, see that it's not about adapting to be what you need from me. It's not like I'm gonna go change, you know, like men often say. Um, it's that I am growing and I'm constantly growing out of what I was. And in a conscious relationship, a conscious relationship can handle that growth. It, I, it can handle it from me growing and you growing. In fact, and not just handle it, it thrives in that kind of growth mindset as opposed to a scarcity mindset, which I brought, you know, I believe in a conscious relationship. I believe that you're my person, but I did bring a scarcity mindset into the relationship. And I don't, that's been reduced from down to, a, you know, a few flickers now and again um, of insecurity or anxious attachment. I don't have that now. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, we're going to finish with this one. Okay. Ram Das said, the most exquisite paradox is as soon as you give it all up, you can have it all. <laughs> so what is that you most want for Justin? And what is that Justin might have to give up? Um, what I want is freedom. 
like freedom like in terms of financial relationship wellness and the thing i have to give up is control <laughs> the thing that i'm most afraid to give up is control and i realize now that control was how the adult protected the wounded child and that I can't do that anymore. They wanted, the, the child needs to come out of hiding and go play and go and go be in the world in a safe, fun way. And 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 I can't I can't helicopter parent myself or the people around me, constantly managing how other people see me through the use of language or you know, drama. You know, it's said in the book The Presence Process that the opposite of uh, presence is drama. And I have kind of, I'm in recovery, but an addiction to drama in some ways. All of that's about control. And a mutual friend, Kelly Campbell, she's got a book coming out, and she talks about this in the book. About It's about trauma and leadership, is that most leaders seek leadership positions because, it, because it's a trauma response. They want something to be in charge of. And I did that. I did that from the very beginning. Even as a, even as a, a kid still at home, I, began, I was fighting for freedom, but I was doing it by trying to control everything. So I have to give control up. Not accountability or responsibility, but control. All right. Well, this is the end of the questions for now. So thank you, Justin, for being so vulnerable and so <laughs> open and honest. We, you gave us the opportunity to get to know you better. And I'm sure that your listeners will appreciate even more the next episodes that you're going to produce because now they know the other side of you that you don't get to share in many of the conversations that you have with your guests. And as for me, I really enjoy hosting this episode. And if you like it, if you like this episode, then stay tuned for the next one in episode 200. <laughs> yeah. And it was a pleasure to be your host for this time. So I'll say you goodbye until the next 200 episode and then back to you Justin. <laughs> and I do want to say before we hit pause here is well thank you first of all for doing this with me all of it. That was fun. Um, I want to thank the 100 or the 99 guests I had. I think I did it all I did the 99 episodes 99 different people um, and um, so thank you to all of, all of you. Thank you for all of you that subscribe, share, comment one of the things that I love to get is the text or the emails or the comments of how much something affected, affected you or impacted you, you know, when you, when you hear the episodes or, or, or read my writing. And that, that means a lot to me. Um, so I'm deeply grateful for getting to this place of 100 episodes. And now, I gotta, now, I, now I'm going to need to go find 99 new guests. Actually, I got so many lined up that I have to pause on recording because... I've, been, I've done a pretty good job of recruiting really interesting people. So, anyway, thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs>